Hello all, I'm Jenny Jones and this is Jen's Green Jam. For those who don't know me, I'm a Green Party peer in the House of Lords and I'm interested in promoting a dialogue based around the Green perspective on various issues in British politics. Each month I talk to a guest to dissect an issue which is important to me or to the Green Party and we conclude by discussing counter-arguments that you may hear in the media. And so today I'm pleased to have with me Neil Woods, who is an undercover officer who has sort of turned whistleblower, and he infiltrated drug gangs and is responsible for a thousand people being sent to prison for drugs offences. So welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. We sort of met on the radio, didn't we? Um, we I think we were on Radio 4, and uh, they said that there was an ex-police officer going to you know, come in after I'd spoken. So I thought you were going to rubbish everything I'd said. And in fact, you agreed with me and it, it silenced me for a moment that you, you were agreeing with everything I said about drugs. So um, you managed to do what the government doesn't usually manage to do, which is shut <laughs> me up very briefly. Um, now, uh, in the next half hour or so, we're going to find out what's happening in the war on drugs, which is something that you are still watching very closely and become better informed in order to discuss and debate on what's an incredibly important issue. So, um, you've written two books. Um, I've got them both here, Good Cop, Bad War and Drug Wars. And in these, you expose all sorts of failings in the way that we handle the big, the big problem of drugs. And um, you've also been described as the most successful undercover police officer in British history. So can you tell us a bit about your career in the British police? Well, the, the kind of undercover work I did wasn't very glamorous. And, and it was... Um, I used to go into an inner city and start at the ground level and I would manipulate vulnerable people into, inf into introducing me to gangsters. So then I would, by increasing amounts of drugs, and get to know the networks of those organised crime groups gather evidence of conspiracy and eventually bring them down. Each operation would last about six months or so. Um, and I did that over the space of about 14 years. And uh, that was dangerous, presumably. Danger dangerous for you. Yes, it certainly had its moments. I've had um, a samurai sword to my throat. Um, I've had someone try to rob me for the heroin that I've just bought huh. at knife point. Um, I've been stripped at gunpoint. I've... Um, had all sorts of threats with knives and things like that. So Why did they strip you? Was it looking for, I don't know, tape recordings or something? Yeah, they were, they were suspicious um, that, you know, the, uh, gangsters become aware that they're undercover police, so year after year it becomes more violent, which is actually one of the principal problems of policing drugs. It will perpetually get more violent. So they were suspicious of me, this gang, a Birmingham gang called the Burger Bar Boys, and they were looking for a wire. They were suspicious I might be undercover. Bergamot, is that not the spice that goes into Earl Grey tea? Bergamot boys, that's great. No, it's the Burger Bar boys. Oh, sorry, Burger Bar boys. Sorry, I misheard you. <laughs> so you've, um, you've since turned whistleblower in, in that you now discuss exactly what the police tactics are for, um, to combat drugs. So um, what caused you to actually question the whole thing about undercover policing and the way that we were treating drugs? Well, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've come full circle because when I started in the police, I was fairly naive. I was a naive 19-year-old. Uh, I believed in that all the laws are there for good reasons. And if I saw someone who was a, had a problem with drugs, I saw them as someone who'd made a stupid mistake and didn't have the willpower to escape it. A very, very judgmental view that is shared by a great number of people. Over time, I got to know 
people who had a problem with drugs, particularly problematic heroin users. And in learning their personal stories, I realised that these these are people who were struggling with life. And in fact, most problematic heroin users are struggling to cope with some kind of childhood trauma. A lot of them child sexual offence, uh, sexual assaults, or physical assaults or neglect. So I developed a much better understanding of those people concerned, but that isn't actually what turned, eventually changed my mind. What changed my mind is that eventually the penny dropped for me that year after year, the work was getting more difficult and much more, the gangsters were getting much more violent. I had to eventually realise that that's a direct response to policing. It's a direct response to me, that it was actually my fault, or rather not just me, but all of the people like me. Because the drugs war is an arms race. The police are really good at catching drug dealers, really good. But they perpetually have to develop new tactics. And the pushback from organised crime is an increased use of violence. And once I realised that, that this is a never-ending journey in one direction, and it was being perpetuated by by my tactics, uh, at that point, really, I was duty-bound to try and explain that to people. Because I I always had a sort of boyhood approach that I was fighting the good fight. You know, I was into that kind of heroic literature and... And, you know, when you realise that actually you're only causing harm, that, that leaves you duty-bound to do something about it, I believe. We met at a conference just recently, and at that conference, I don't think it was you, I think somebody else said um, that the police never affect the size of the um, supply of, of any drug. They never actually limit it. Only the shape of the drug supply changes because different as you clear out one lot of people another lot come in to take advantage of it yeah yeah that was me that said that yeah absolutely and it it's true i mean you never reduce the size of the market and it's interesting that the word that's crept into the police lexicon in the way that they talk about drugs organized crime groups they use the word disrupt that we need to disrupt this this activity well disruption is not reduction and when you arrest one dealer, you create an opportunity for others. And that disruption usually leads to violence in competition. A stable market is less violent. But another side effect of that, of course, is police are really good at catching drug dealers. Very, very good. But they are more likely to catch the low-hanging fruit than they do, which thins it out, makes it more monopolised, which means that the people who are in control of the largest chunks of the finances have increasingly larger share of the pot, which leads to corruption. Uh, the, the police talk all the time about county lines when children, young people, are sort of groomed, or whatever you want to call it, or trained up in places like London and then sent out to places like Norwich where they can sell those drugs. Now, uh, politicians as well you say that this is a cause of crime, but uh, at the conference they were saying, no, it's, a, it's not a cause, it's actually just um, a byproduct. Well, actually, the, the exploitation of children, which is county lines, that's my fault as well. That's the fault of undercover cops like me. Because I'll explain. One of that group that I talked about, the Burger Bar Boys, they were doing an early version of County Lines. They were a monopoly from the big city, Birmingham, and they moved to Northampton to take over the supply of heroin and crack cocaine in that city, which is exactly what County Lines is now. But I, I caught them all. I caught them, and they went to jail for 10 years for conspiracy to supply Class A drugs. So the use of children is a very logical development in response to police success. Very, very logical. 
I suppose in any protracted conflict, the foot soldiers get younger, and this, the drug war is no, no exception to that. Children can't be infiltrated by undercover police like, like I was. More importantly than that, they can't be infiltrated by normal police informants. And of course, to organised crime groups, they are disposable, easily manipulated, and they create a buffer zone between, between the police and themselves. So we have to be clear about this. It's, it's a result of police success. Something we have found out about here in Parliament, in the House of Lords actually, is that the police in fact are using child spies. They catch young people who are committing crimes and then they brief them and they send them back. Instead of thinking these are vulnerable kids, we should rescue them, they're actually putting them back into danger. So there is that sort of infiltration. Um, but I would imagine there's probably not many of them because you wouldn't find that many um, suitable personalities perhaps. Well, no. Well, we don't know, though, do we? No, we because don't know. But there is no oversight of that system. And that, I think you're completely right in your assessment that that is about county lines. That is a response to county lines happening from, from the policing establishment. Now, you will hear police commentators in the media say, defending that tactic, and they say this is about terrorism and it's about other kind of people trafficking and various things. But we really must be very clear that 95% of police informants for any top of whether adults or children are for drugs offences. Then they're not used for other things. It's all about the drug war. One of the famous things about you is that you sent a thousand people to jail. Well, slight, not quite that. It's not a thousand people. It's a cumulative total of a thousand years in prison. Oh. Which I consider now a waste, a, a thousand wasted years. Oh no. Now you've also talked about uh, drug money corruption as endemic in the police. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I've come across corruption face-to-face -face a few times. <clears throat> Perhaps the most serious was when I was working in Nottingham. And I was trying to get information on the Bestwood cartel, headed by a gangster, famous gangster called Colin Gunn. It took me four and a half months to get close to his particular team and get in introduced to someone closely connected with him. He interrogated me with a knife, a knife pressed into my groin at the time. So that was a long day at the office, so to speak. The next morning, two of my backup team had gone off sick, and so I was introduced to two new people. And the first one, I shook his hand, had no problem. But then the second one, I shook his hand and the hairs just went up in the back of my neck. Instinctively, there was something about him that just screamed wrong. And when you've been on the streets for four and a half months, you're verging on paranoid in terms of your perceptions. So I pointed this out, I said, I'm not happy with him knowing what I'm doing. And the boss running the job said, fine, we'll exclude him. It turned out, a few months later, when Colin Gunn's team was, was brought down, that that person I'd taken exception to was employed by Colin Gunn. He'd been paid by him to join the police. By the time I met him, he'd been in the police for seven years. He was paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. Now, in the debrief with that, I met with, with various senior police... And their attitude, universally, was, Woodsy, of course this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? And I should make something very, very clear, that the only form of criminality that can pay for that level of corruption is from the illicit drugs market. Nothing else. Not only is there no, there isn't sufficient value in other kinds of criminality, but there isn't this monopolising effect, which is caused by the thinning out of the, uh, of the lesser drug dealers that the police do. Uh, did you have to take drugs as part of your, of your cover 
I have had to on some occasions. Once um, I made the dreadful mistake of during an infiltration in a pub in um, in Leicester for a few weeks, I'd been making myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines, and I'm clearly not. But this particular gangster, who was my principal target, brought me a present one day, and he had this little sealable bag with this rather pink-looking, toxic-looking goo in it. It, it. You could almost see it dissolving the plastic, it was so strong. It smelt like the urine from a glue-sniffing cat. It, it smelt quite dreadful. Anyway, he, he gave that to me, and he, he picked up on my tentativeness, my feeling not quite sure about And this. you shouldn't have been tentative. Cause... No, no. So instinctively, there was a body language thing between us, and I thought, oh, dear, I really do have to take this right now. So I ended up having to have some. And it, it was a horrendous experience. Um, normal amphetamine at the time was 5% pure. This was 40% pure. <laughs> so I didn't sleep for properly for three nights. It was horrendous. Mind you, my house has never been so tidy. <laughs> I'm not really into drugs apart from caffeine and alcohol. Um, I've never seen the attraction. So um, I, I imagine um, it, it takes a physical toll that um, it's impossible to disguise. Well, possibly, but you have to remember 90% of drug use is non-problematic. And even the 10% that is problematic is a sliding scale. So the, these laws exist to, to interfere with people's freedom. For what? You know, we smash people's doors down in the early hours as police officers to save them from themselves? Now, drug-related deaths doubled during Theresa May's time as Home Secretary. So what actually led to that sort of sharp increase? Well, since drugs were banned, uh, they've become stronger and more dangerous, worse adulteration and cheaper. You know, I was paying £10 for heroin in 1993... I was paying £10 for the same amount in 2007, and over that time it got stronger. So there's always going to be increased risk in the black market. However, the policies that actually influenced, added to those drug deaths, was it was two things, really. There was a shift in philosophy away from harm reduction towards recovery, and there was a very moralising agenda that recovery should be the way of treating people who have a problem with drugs. That directly led to an increase in, in the deaths and the, lack, and the lack of investment in harm reduction. And, the, and, and actually the... The philosophical crushing, attempt to crush the ideas of harm reduction, that those have directly led particularly to heroin deaths. Now, you've suggested somewhere that uh, drug policy played a part in the Brixton riots and the sabotage of the Stephen Lawrence investigation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the Brixton riots and the other riots that happened that year, 1981, it's no accident at all that those happened ten years after the Misuse of Drugs Act. The, the police were given these, this war chest of powers to deal with drugs, and they really didn't know what they were doing. So they had to set up their drug squads, and they, decided to, and they had to decide who is the drug dealer and who is the drug user. What this did is it eked out and amplified cultural racism. So, I mean, for, for the book Drug Wars, we interviewed a police officer who worked in Brixton just before the Brixton riots, and at the time... And Peter Blexley, in fact, the famous Peter Blexley. And he said that he wasn't racist until he went to work in the police in Brixton, in that area. But he became a racist thug because the direction was to stop young black people because they were perceived to be the users of drugs. Because when you other people, you have to make a judgmental decision and that creates prejudice. 
And we also interviewed someone from the other side who, who was part of that persecution of black people through the 1970s, which led to the, to the riots. And, and he said, yeah, it was all about drugs entirely. And according to him and his community, it was all about cannabis and the police looking for it. And he would be snatched off the street, beaten, caught with drugs sometimes, and be left beaten in a cell. And this was common. He would hear other people being beaten in the cells. That sounds like persecution. It's persecution, but it, com- it, it comes from the prejudice created by drug policy. A- absolutely. Now, the Scarman Report, which followed the Brixton riots, is, is famous for changing the way the police worked. And obviously we had the Police and Criminal Evidence Act that came from that. And it was a, hailed as a very detailed report. And yet drugs are mentioned once in that report. Cannabis isn't mentioned. They're not even, it's not seen as a factor at all. And yet it is the, the entire story is about drug policy. And how did that impact on the Stephen Lawrence investigation? Well, Stephen Lawrence, that, the issue there comes really from the corruption that, that we uh, talked about a few minutes ago, that the fact that the monopolisation leads to the inevitable corruption of the criminal justice system. And the Stephen Lawrence inquiry was impacted by the fact that one of the suspects was related to a high-up police informant. And so the suspect was protected as a result of that. It's, it's a long story and convoluted and details. The details of that are in, are in drug wars, but we could be here for the full half an hour just talking about that. Well, of course, uh, Doreen Lawrence, Stephen Lawrence's mother, is now a peer in the House of Lords and she still works on, on these issues and is a very valuable voice, of course. Um, now, you've also described current drugs policy as an act of violence. So what do you mean by that and who is it an act of violence against? I should make something clear because I, I'm aware I'm in danger of here appearing just critical of the police. I'm not. My, my view is that the police have been lumbered with this horrendous policy. They've, they've been well and truly stitched up with this, really, because they've been given this war chest of powers and this problem to theoretically, theoretically deal with. And there is no policing solution to drugs. But if you... If you think about the Pelian principles, the Pelian principles really is what we found the idea of policing by consent on. Principle number seven is that the police are, com- police are the community and the community are the police. That was breached, torn, torn up completely by drug policy, by punitive drug policy. Now, when I learnt my policing started in 1989, my tutor said we should treat everybody with equal respect. And this was shown once when we went to arrest somebody for a robbery, actually quite a violent robbery, and he knocked on the door, and he was very polite. And the the man answered the door, he knew he'd been rumbled, and showed us where the property was. And it was all very civilised. And then the first time I got involved in a drugs warrant, which my tutor actually sort of disapproved of, it was a completely different story. It's at five o'clock in the morning, and a door is smashed in, Police run in and they shout and scream. And the, the briefing before that, a warrant, will always be, no matter where it is in the country, the sergeant will brief the troops and say, be aggressive, cause fear. That's in the directive for it. And the reason for that is in the 1970s, police realised that when they went in the house to, house to get drugs, they got swallowed, so people had overdoses and they lost their evidence, or they got flushed down the toilet. Which meant the police had to pay for the damage. Because if you don't find the drugs, you have to pay for the damage. 
And also, if someone ends up in hospital, you lose your staff to watch them. So it's a staffing issue. But that must have been for quite small amounts. If you can flush it down the loo quickly or swallow it quickly, that can't be a lot. Well, no, but if you find a gram of cannabis, you don't have to pay for the door. <laughs> so that has led to an aggression, a military-type approach to policing that just didn't exist before. And that is violence on the public, I think. I think. And, of course, it spills over into other areas like stop and search, which... At one time, the instruction was to be relentlessly polite, and somehow that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Well, I mean, I've worked with some brilliant, polite and diplomatic police, and the vast majority of them are. Um, but you, ha you cannot ignore the evidence of the racial disparity with stop and search. And you can't really ignore the evidence that it's not necessarily as successful as, as police would, some police would, would say it is. And... If you bear in mind, 90% of stop and search is for drugs. 90%. That's a lot of searches that you wouldn't have to do. So you could actually use stop and search as an effective, measured tool in policing if you didn't have a punitive drug policy. Absolutely. A much more targeted and mm. effective policy, yes. Um, something that we don't talk about much, and I, uh, I, I find this uh, something a lot of people who are... Um, affected by drugs policy adversely, they're not very sympathetic about it. And that's the impact on the police officers themselves when mm. they are working undercover. I mean, I know several whistleblowers now, and they all do say that it's incredibly stressful. Yes, I, I'm diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's quite complex, it, my particular version of it. Um, with many different triggers and aspects. Uh, but the, the most important part to me is, I think, is what's caused, is uh, referred to as um, moral damage, which I think was per first referred to from some veterans of the uh, Vietnam War because they found they were affected profoundly by guilt. And that is what I'm profoundly affected by. So although I've got no doubt that the violence that I was exposed to has had some impact on my mental health long term when I am particularly anxious and I have an attack it's not the samurai sword to my throat that haunts me, it's the faces of the people I've harmed At the conference I've just referred to we did actually have uh, a report from another um, ex-Met officer who also worked undercover for some time and he has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder as well. His has taken a different sort of turn and he, uh, he actually finds it difficult to express emotion mm. and he told me his mother died recently and he couldn't really grieve because of his PTSD. Yes, we've had a good conversation about our uh, different sim symptoms and we are so very different um, but there must be a spectrum. There must be a lot of police officers who suffer um, just very differently. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a statistic, actually, from the United States I saw recently that 17% um, of uh, police officers in the USA may actually suffer symptoms. And, of course, a lot of marriages break up. Um, police officers find they're taking their problems home and their wives can't cope. Absolutely. I, I say it that way around because it's predominantly men, male officers, who are doing this. Yes, and, and in fact, in the, again, in the USA, um, more police officers commit suicide than are killed on duty, significantly, as well. It's one of the highest uh, jobs for suicide. But again, I, I, would, I, would, I would bring that back to drug policy, because PTSD is traditionally seen as a military disease, complex PTSD. 
seen as a military disease. Well, the militarisation of police and the militaristic approach is from the drug war. It's not from anything else. Now, you clearly have a view on how much police, court and prison resources are used on drugs offences. I mean, it's a huge amount. Mm. And you're suggesting it's absolutely not worth it. Absolutely. It's, it's not only futile, it's causing huge harm to individuals, communities and society as a whole. It causes harm to individuals because people who need help get sent to prison. And, and that, that, I mean, even if you don't care about those people, the money could certainly be spent much more efficiently because looking after people is actually much cheaper than punishing them. Uh, the communities are ravaged by the separation between communities and police. And society as a whole is being damaged by the corruption which is caused from the drug war. And, of course, the more police... Well, for a start, there's fewer police than, than for some years now because of um, government policies. But also that means that there are fewer community police, and that's where police often get all the information about the gangs and the drugs and that sort of thing. People don't trust the police as much, and that, that has a knock-on effect. Yes, absolutely. And, and well, the most important aspect there is that police do rely on the community and they need to be part of the community, but that, the separation there is because of the drugs. But it's actually the problem that that's... Play, the way that's playing out now, and I've been predicting this um, a little morbidly for a few years, is that it's playing out with the murder detection rate. So that's the percentage of murders that are solved... Now, the reason I've been predicting that that would fall in the UK is because when Richard Nixon declared the US war on drugs in 1971, the the, generally the murder detection rate, the percentage of murders solved in the USA, was 85%. Within four years of him declaring the war on drugs, it dropped to 65%. And it's stayed that low since, despite the period of time of a development in, 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 in um, forensic techniques and fingerprint techniques, things like that. So despite the scientific improvements, it stayed at 65%. That's a direct response to the drug war. Now, of course, we don't have guns in this country, particularly. So we've been much slower to get to that problem. But only recently, I think in August, Cressida Dick announced, and I think it's a direct quote, that murders are getting harder to solve. Mm. And the traditional 90% in the UK has dropped to 77 that is not going to improve for as long as we maintain the war on drugs. Now, it's long been Green Party policy to legalise drugs and treat them as a public health issue rather than a criminal one. And in your book, it says... Um, I'm only going to quote this one quote. I mean, it's eminently quotable from all through, but there's one here. Um, one of the phrases I often hear from my own allies is that the war on drugs should end because it's unwinnable. I fundamentally disagree. The war on drugs is eminently winnable. All we have to do is stop fighting. Hmm. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, we, get, we take control of the situation by stop fighting and take control away from organised crime. We regulate those commodities. Then we don't have to fight. When, if someone needs help with drugs, then they get help. And then we, then we will win. We win by taking the market away from gangsters. What do you mean by regulate? Well, each drug, I, I try and avoid the word, the L word generally, the legalisation yes. word, because it, it, gives, it gives people the jitters. Um, but really, when you break it down, regulation is different for every drug because different drugs need different careful regulation, just like foodstuffs or other kind of regulation. The easiest one is heroin, actually, because it would only ever be a medical model. 
And if we go back to the British system, in fact, I'll, I'll explain about the British system. The drug war is an American export. It's a result of an Ameri a very aggressive American foreign policy. The last resistance against that foreign policy was the British system, which, which basically meant if you had a problem with drugs, you went to the doctor and you got help. Fairly straightforward. But for heroin, that meant you got prescribed heroin. So at the time when the Americans were trying to persuade the British to follow their prohibition lead, the Americans were measuring their problematic heroin users in the hundreds of thousands, and we were measuring ours in the hundreds. So 20 years after the ban, after the Misuse of Drugs Act, then we had 350,000 problematic heroin users. So heroin is straightforward. We go back to the British system, we prescribe heroin to those that need it, the numbers will fall, people will survive. For other drugs, it's a bit more complicated. For cannabis, you'd need to decide your style of retail outlet and the type of the drug, the quality of the drug, what age to sell it to, you know, obviously photographic identification. And the drugs in the middle, things like MDMA, will save lots of lives by having a proper quality product in measured doses. A licensed pharmacy is probably the most appropriate outlet for that. But if someone wants to, the real detail about how to do this, there is a fantastic organisation called Transform Drug Policy Foundation, and they literally have all of the answers of how to regulate each commodity. That sounds great. Um, going back to cannabis, which you mentioned, uh, lots of countries across the world are actually starting to legalise and decriminalise it. So what do you think is holding us back here? Well, the moralising discourse is, is, is a, a long-term problem. Um, and for a long time, the two big parties have always tried to outdo each other with how tough they can be on drugs because it's an easy scoring point. Politicians, combined with the way that drugs are reported in the press, the media has got a lot to answer for with misinformation and drug scare stories. Um, and this has created a situation where people are, are very misinformed about, about drugs. So misinformation is a problem. But, you know, things, times are changing. There was a survey only a few days ago, I think, um, sponsored by the campaign group Voltfast, and they showed 59% of people in favour of um, liberalising cannabis policy, either by regulating or just decriminalising. So times are changing, you know, that they are changing. And politicians generally, I am quite sure, are behind the public on this. Right. Um, when Sorry. you talk about politicians... But, but not, not all politicians. <laughs> no, not Western all politicians. Many politicians, course, yes, yeah. yes. Um, one other thing that you've said in the past um, is that there are signs that the police themselves are fed up with this war on drugs and are actually um, saying themselves that it doesn't work. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, sh I should clarify, there are some great politicians in each party who are campaigning for, for, on this topic. Of course. Uh, and, and more all the time, actually. But, um, but I, in terms of politically, the most important thing that's going on with drug policy in the UK is that police are actually changing it in spite of politics and not because of it. So the police and crime commissioners who are in support of reform, uh, Ron Hogg, uh, David Jameson... Uh, Arvon Jones in North Wales. They're actually, and, and uh, in Avon and Somerset as well, they're bringing in diversion schemes. There's a sort of de facto decriminalisation going on. And in fact, I, I spoke at an event in Durham and the, the chief constable there, Mike Barton, stated publicly 
that here in Durham we are decriminalising the possession of drugs. Let me make it perfectly clear, he said, nobody will be going to court for the possession of drugs. And it couldn't be much clearer than that. Now, the Home Office response is we expect the police to maintain, to uphold the law, but police are using their discretion and some inventive and, and clever policy of their own to, uh, to try and improve things. So police are leading it. And now, my organisation, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is a United Nations international organisation, we, we exist in the United States, huge there. We've just launched Leap Scandinavia. We're going to be le launching Leap in France soon. And in the U UK, we have former chief constables, MI5, former other former undercover officers, and we're growing rapidly and getting lots of support. Um, we're helping facilitate the police getting involved. And are you finding that the police will listen to you in spite of your having resigned and and been critical of certain police activities, they're still prepared to work with you? Yes, absolutely. When Good Cop, Bad War was published in, I think, 2016, I was public enemy number one mm. to covert policing. Uh, in fact, um, a friend of mine, a close friend in, in the police, was called into an office and told by a senior officer given that she was being given a lawful order to not speak to me at all, huh. and was told to delete me from her phone and social media at that point. Is that office. legal? Yeah, it's a lawful order. Yeah, so the police can 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 do that. Um, but things have changed because there's so many police have contacted me after the after the book, and lots of other undercover police, and uh, and now the support is is fantastic, and there are some incredible uh, voices for reform from within serving police, including actually some of the police federation. Simon Kempton has spoken out saying, uh, who is the drugs lead for the police federation. And uh, he, he's been careful in his, in his wording, but he's said that we need a review of, of the way things are. That is excellent news, because mm. quite honestly, it, I mean, it, it seems so stupid when so many police resources are used on so little just um, to, to so little effect in that there are all these people are carrying tiny amounts of drugs and they're still getting caught and prosecuted. Can I just throw a few things at you that people will say um, is going to be a problem? For example, people do say all the time that drugs cause crime. Now, you're saying that, that it's not true. Drug policy causes crime. There is actually a time in living memory in the United Kingdom because we came so late to prohibition. A time in living memory when there was no association between drugs and crime at all. At all. And actually in the collective consciousness, people wouldn't consider there to be a link. Another question that people sort of raise is that the same criminals who profit from drugs now would also make a profit if drugs were legalised but without the legal constraints. So they'd sell black market drugs. Well, you can never get completely get rid of a black market. On the south coast of England, there is a black market for alcohol. In fact, some, some, in some areas, it's estimated that the size of that black market is 10%. But that 10% is about saving tax. So it's a small, it's a percentage, a small percentage of that 10%. So in terms of the value and the potential corruptibility of the value in that market, it's not something we should be worried about. And besides, that's a regulatory issue. You know, you could tackle that with regulation. People also say that drugs cause mental illness. Would you argue with that? And, and that if we don't make them illegal, we're not protecting people. 
Well, I would say sending people to prison causes mental illness and putting, putting people through the criminal justice system is incredibly damaging to people's mental health and can ruin entire lives. Um, so, so I would suggest cannabis is really the, the drug that people talk about mostly in the debate in terms of the mental illness that it can allegedly cause. But quite clearly, the, the greatest risks of that drug are getting caught with it. Now, you can argue that there is a risk of psychosis with that drug or not, but, again, that's a regulatory issue, that some forms of the drug are a greater risk than others. So regulation is the way to tackle that. At the moment, how strong any drug is, what it's cut with, is decided by gangsters. I would much rather it was decided by government and doctors. If drugs become legal then wouldn't people just take more of them and become ill and die or whatever? You know, would it not be a bigger public health hazard? Well, I mean, the, the greatest uh, narrative of people who want to maintain the status quo is that there would be an increase in people using drugs. Well, for some drugs that might be the case. I don't know. But you have to look at the overall health cost of that as a risk. Because what we need to be thinking is it's not drug use per se that we have to be worried about, it's problematic drug use. Because problematic drug use is where the health problems come from. So if 90% of people use drugs non-problematically, then, then those people aren't necessarily a health problem at all, depending on what the drug is and what the risks of it are. But I have to say there is evidence, very clear evidence, that actually there's a um, famous study by Professor David Nutt and others called the Compar Comparators Report. And it was published in The Lancet, in, I think, in 2010. And it shows very clearly what the actual uh, risks and health problems are of each drug comparatively. And he suggested that, actually, that kind of evidence should inform policy for how we regulate things. And in that list, the most risky drug is alcohol. Mm, by far. Uh, by a long way. Yeah. Not, not just for the health risks to the body, but also the damage to society and behaviour. And a very, very long way down that list are things like MDMA or LSD. But one could argue that's because they're not freely available. If they're actually freely available in shops, then more people might take them and more might be badly affected by them. Well, the study, I mean, the methodology of the study is very thorough. Uh, I recommend, highly recommend anyone uh, looking it up. But because it does, it does answer that question, and that there are ways of considering the health impacts of a drug. For example, there is no toxicity to LSD. There is no record of anyone overdosing because it doesn't have that kind of uh, problem. Um, that there's also lots of benefits to various drugs, including the psychedelics, which aren't adequately considered because they've been that's been shut down by the narrative of prohibition. So. There, there are even benefits. And one of, the, one of the things I love that David Nutt states is that some, if, if there was a bigger selection, choice of drugs, people could make healthier choices. <laughs> OK, I like that argument. Um, <laughs> there is apparently a public shift on cannabis because there's a um, poll from last May where 59% of people said that they support legalisation. So public opinion is moving in that way. And as you say, most politicians are probably behind the curve on that. And um, it would seem that this is something that's going to happen at some point, but mm. a lot of politicians will have ideological problems with 
legalisation or regulation, and so it's a huge hurdle to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ideology is a problem often, isn't it? And I, I'm, I just think that an evidence-based drug policy is not too much to ask. Is there anything you feel we haven't covered? Do you feel that there are, um, you know, problems with um, crime syndicates that will never be fixed by uh, sorting out drugs policing? Or Well, you'll, you'll never completely get rid of organised crime because the Pandora's box was open the moment we drugs were banned. But you can level the playing field and take the money away from them. Now, there's a very interesting, uh, some very interesting reports from the National Crime Agency, and they state that the money from the drugs black market is reinvested into other forms of criminality. So, therefore, the bank, if you could deceive that way, that, that pool of money makes other crime more possible. So you're talking about people trafficking and other kinds of international crime. So if you remove that bank, and in the UK, that the best estimate that I can see is that that's worth £10 billion a year, you can take that £10 billion a year away from organised crime like that, just like that. So you're not only removing a violent market which is infecting our society like a cancer, you're also removing the ability for them to invest into other kinds of crime. You mentioned very briefly the issue of actually taxing and regulating drugs. And what I've found is that with many politicians, if you actually explain it as a form of money raising for government, they're actually more attracted to the idea of legalisation or regulation, that actually tax is a bonus. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't tend to use the tax argument myself. Uh, it, it works in the United States. The tax argument is one of the things that's actually changed people's minds, according to some polling. In this country, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, it's, if I speak to a room of uh, middle-aged people who have got kids, and I say to them, look, we can tax tax it, and that'll be more money for your schools, and what would that be great? I'd have half of them walking out, because the British sensibility is that how dare you put the safety of my children down to money? So it doesn't... It's a difficult argument in this country, and I think actually the Canadian messaging and way of seeing things would work very well here, because the Liberals campaigned for the regulation of cannabis, and they, you could argue, arguably, they won the election because of that campaign. Their arguments were the same as we need to have here, is that this is about protecting our children from the drug, because in the UK it's far easier for children to get hold of cannabis than it is alcohol, because dealers don't ask for a photographic ID. But we not only need to protect our children from the drug, but we also need to be protecting our children from that contact with the fringes of organised crime. And actually, to bring it back to county lines, that would go a long way to actually separating our young people from gangsters. Neil, I think your organisation, LEAP, does podcasts of its own. Yes, that's right. It's called Stop and Search, which is, I think is quite a cheeky title. That is cheeky. Um, so if people want to know more about drug policy, we have all sorts of people, uh, guests we've had to come and talk about it, people like Rufus Hound and Marcus Brigstock. And this year it won two awards at the Podcast Awards. So Congratulations. Please, so please check that that's out. That's fantastic. So um, I want to say thank you for coming and talking to me about this because you're just you're reinforcing something the Green Party's believed for years, but you're actually making quite evidence-based statements about it. And it's also very kind of you to talk about the sort of difficulties you experienced as a police officer. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you. <laughs>